everybody. My name is Lori Gwen Shapiro, and I am the author of the new nonfiction book, The Stowaway, uh, which is a nonfiction book about a young man who persisted uh, in his dreams of going to Antarctica in 1928. However, our esteemed panel today uh, will be talking about novels, um, and we have two literary rock stars and one rising rock star here, <laughs> and I'm very thrilled. What, what I'm going to do is introduce our panelists. Um, I've asked them to read a, a, a choice section of their current work, and I'll ask them a few questions, and then, of course, um, we'll open it up to questions in the audience. So this is just so you know. Um, I'm going to start. I have some information on my phone to make it easier for me. Hold on one second. No. Okay. okay. We have, a, and we also have an interpreter today um, from Mr. Guinness. Are you going to, oh, you're going to work? Oh, Daniel is our interpreter as well. Okay. So we're going to start at the, at the far end um, with Marcos Guinness, uh, who's a, uh, a prize winning internationally best selling author, and he's born the son of European Jewish immigrants in Argentina in 1935, and he learned at age seven that his grandfather and the rest of his family in Europe had been killed by the Nazis. And he has described this as the defining moment of his life. And he says that it drove him to write an effort to repair the broken mechanism of humanity. Uh, he has published his first book in 1963, and since then has published 13 novels, 14 essay collections, four short story collections, and two biographies covering historical, political, and artistic themes. Aguinis was the first author outside of Spain to win the prestigious Planeta Prize for his book, The Inverted Cross, and his novel, Against the Inquisition, which was praised by Nobel Prize laureate Mar Mario Vargas Loza as a stirring song of freedom. And when democracy was reinstated in Argentina in 1983, Aguinis became Secretary of Culture for his brave fight against dictatorship and the defense of human rights and sponsored the renowned cultural renaissance. Now, I'm going to continue by asking, we'll start with um, the first, uh, we're going to start there, perhaps, and we can have the first um, section of what he's prepared to read, which is coming from uh, Against the Inquisition. Thank you. Francisco Maldonado da Silva, el personaje principal de mi novela histórica Against the Inquisition, la gesta del marrano en Spanish, fue un médico del siglo XVI que protagonizó una épica ejemplar. Nació en lo que hoy es la Argentina, un siglo después del descubrimiento de América y la cruel expulsión de todos los judíos de los territorios españoles. Su vida conmociona. 
Francisco Maldonado da Silva, the main character of my historical novel Against the Inquisition, was a 16th century doctor who was the main protagonist of an exemplary epic. He was born in what today is Argentina, a century after the discovery of America and the cruel expulsion of all Jews from Spanish territory. His life is profoundly moving. Los invito a instalarse en la ciudad de Lima, Perú, en enero de 1639. Era entonces el virreinato español se iba a llevar a cabo el mayor auto de fe del continente americano. I invite you to go back to Lima in January 1639. That was then uh, part of the vice royalty of Peru and the biggest auto de fe in the history of the Americas was about to take place. El auto de fe era un espectáculo grandioso y horrible donde la Inquisición humillaba para incrementar el miedo y aumentar su poder. Auto de fe's were grandiose but horrible spectacles where the Inquisition would humiliate its victims to increase fear and increase its power. La plaza central servía para todo tipo de espectáculos, procesiones religiosas, corridas de toros, vender artesanías y otros productos, también para quemar vivos a los presuntos herejes. The main plaza had many functions and was good for many types of shows, religious processions, bullfights, selling handicrafts and other products. It was also used to burn suspected heretics alive. Días previos al espantoso acontecimiento, varios cronistas fueron encargados de interrogar a los cautivos dentro de las cárceles secretas y escribir documentos aparentemente objetivos que viajarían por el mundo. La Inquisición quería dar a conocer su fuerte sistema de justicia. Days before the awful event, various chroniclers were charged with the task of questioning, interviewing the captives inside the secret jails and writing apparently objective documents about them which would travel throughout the world. The Inquisition wanted to make its strong justice system well known. Esos documentos revelan que Francisco Maldonado da Silva fue un prestigioso médico que languideció en prisión durante 13 años. Those documents reveal that Francisco Maldonado da Silva was a prestigious doctor who languished in prison for practically 13 years. Había sido detenido por defender su derecho a la libertad de conciencia. He had been arrested for defending his right to freedom of conscience. A pesar de los castigos, mantuvo su postura y desafió con sus vastos conocimientos a los jueces y funcionarios de la corte inquisitorial. In spite of the punishments, he stuck to his position and challenged the inquisitorial court judges and staff with his vast knowledge. 
Los grilletes ulceraban sus muñecas y tobillos, pero su espíritu empujó a los inquisidores a la desesperación. The shackles ulcerated his wrists and his ankles, but his spirit drove the inquisitors to the point of desperation. No lo querían matar sin que antes se diera por vencido, pero las torturas no pudieron triunfar. They didn't want to kill him without first having him give in, but the tortures could not triumph. Entonces los jueces convocaron a estudiosos de todo el virreinato para que debatieran con él, que discutieran con él. Pero este hombre, aunque tenía un físico debilitado, refutaba sus argumentos con lucidez. So then, the judges brought in scholars from the entire vice royalty to debate with him. But this man, although physically weakened, lucidly refuted their arguments. ¿Quién era realmente Francisco Maldonado da Silva? ¿Dónde aprendió tanto? ¿Qué misterioso fuego lo sostenía? Who really was this Francisco Maldonado da Silva? Where did he learn so much? What mysterious fire upheld him? Francisco nació en 1592 en un pequeño pueblito pintado de pastel y azul. Francisco was born in 1592 in a small village painted in pastel blue tones. Su padre también fue médico, de ascendencia española, portuguesa y judía. Había sido expulsado de Europa por su condición de judío, pese a su disimulada conversión religiosa. Y se casó con una cristiana devota para evitar sospechas sobre su identidad. Francisco's father also was a doctor of Spanish, Portuguese, and Jewish origin. Having been expelled from Europe because he was Jewish, he, he was expelled from Europe because he was Jewish in spite of a simulated religious conversion. He married a devout Christian to avoid suspicion about his identity. Nuestro pequeño protagonista tenía un hermano mayor que se hirió en el pie mientras jugaba. Lo trató su padre, que era médico. No solo le vendó la herida, sino que también le contó un horrible secreto. Así fue como por primera vez Francisco, oculto tras una cortina, escuchó la espantosa, la espantosa revelación. Eran judíos. Our young protagonist had an older brother who cut his feet while he was playing. His father, who was a doctor, took care of the wound. But not only did he bandage up the wound, but he also entrusted him with a horrible secret. That was how Francisco, who was hiding behind the curtain, heard the frightening revel revelation. They were Jews. Pronto la familia se vio obligada a escapar en vísperas de una persecución devastadora, viajaron por tierras donde tuvieron que enfrentar las amenazas de los nativos y de las bestias salvajes. Atravesaron la desolación de vastas llanuras hasta llegar a otra importante ciudad de Virenato. Soon, the family was forced to escape on the eve of a devastating persecution. 
they traveled through lands where they had to face the threats of the natives and savage beasts. They crossed the desolation of vast plains before reaching another important city of the Viceroyalty. Francisco tenía nueve años cuando su padre fue arrestado por el delito de practicar secretamente el judaísmo. Francisco was nine when his father was arrested for the crime of secretly practicing Judaism. Un año más tarde, en un episodio de violencia horrible, descrito en el libro, su hermano mayor también fue arrestado. A year later, in an episode of horrible violence, which is also described in the book, his older brother was also arrested. Ambos fueron encadenados y enviados a Lima, donde funcionaba el alto tribunal de la Inquisición. Both were put into chains, <coughs> into chains and sent to Lima, where the high inquisitorial tribunal also functioned. Mientras, los funcionarios locales confiscaron lenta y cruelmente todas las pertenencias familiares hasta que Francisco, sus dos hermanas y su madre quedaron arruinados. At the same time, local <coughs> functionaries uh, slowly and cruelly confiscated all the family belongings to the point where Francisco, his two sisters and his mother were left destitute. El comisionado del santo oficio era un monje dominicano que solía caminar con un gato tan voluminoso como un cordero. The commissioner of the holy office of the Inquisition was a hungry Dominican monk who used to walk around with a cat as voluminous as a lamb. Afirmaba que trabajaba para la salud espiritual de la familia. Pero en verdad los chantajeó hasta el fin. La madre de Francisco murió desconsolada y el obispo internó a los niños en un convento. He <coughs> used to say that he was working for the spiritual well-being of the family, but the fact is that he blackmailed them into the end. The Francisco's mother died heartbroken and the bishop had the children admitted to a convent. Una terrible eh, ambivalencia avergonzó el alma de nuestro pequeño Francisco. El amor por su padre ausente contrastaba con la condena que percibía a su alrededor. Como hijo de un hereje, tuvo que pedir permisos especiales para estudiar. A terrible ambivalence shamed the soul of our young Francisco. The love for his absent father contrasted with the condemnation that he saw around him. As the son of a heretic, he had to ask for special authorization to study. Tras mucha súplica, obtuvo acceso a una variedad de libros, dominó el idioma latín, estudió la Biblia, e incluso memorizó largos pasajes. After a great deal of supplication, <coughs> he got access to a variety of books, he mastered Latin, studied the Bible, and he even managed to memorize long passages. Sus años de desesperación fueron también años de vasto aprendizaje. His years of desperation were also years of vast learning. Soportó la burla y el castigo que lejos de frenarlo, frenar, de frenarlo fortaleció su alma. He had to put up, he bore the brunt of the mockery and punishment that far from restraining him 
only strengthened his soul. A los 18 años, a los 18 años, consiguió permiso de las autoridades para viajar a Lima y estudiar medicina en la Universidad de San Marcos. At the age of 18, he got permission from the authorities to travel to Lima and study medicine at the University of San Marcos. La Inquisición seguía sus pasos de cerca para asegurarse de que no se desviaría de la fe. The Inquisition was carefully watching his footsteps to ensure he would not deviate from the faith. De hecho, lo que más deseaba Francisco era reencontrarse con su padre, quien había tenido que pagar un horrible precio por su vida. Bajo tortura, su padre se vio obligado a traicionar a sus amigos y a renunciar públicamente a su identidad judía. As a matter of fact, the thing Francisco desired most was to be reunited with his father, who had had to pay a terrible price for his life. Under torture, he was forced to betray his friends and to publicly, publicly renounce his Jewish identity. Fue condenado a trabajar como médico en el puerto de Lima y a utilizar el infame San Benito. El San Benito es una túnica llena de inscripciones que denunciaban su, a su portador como un ser despreciable. Este fue un precedente de la estrella de David, la estrella amarilla de David impuesta por los nazis. His father was condemned to work as a doctor in the port of Lima and to wear the infamous San Benito, which is a sort of tunic filled with inscriptions that denounced the wearer as a contemptible creature. Daniel, oh, Daniel we're going to, if we can just say, we can, maybe we can sum up with one, because we want to make sure everyone gets in. Sum up with, ah, with one, one or two sentence. sentences from the heart. Yeah. Este, por permura de tiempo, le piden que resuma con una o dos oraciones dichas del corazón. Lo que sigue es mucho más impresionante y doloroso y ejemplar porque a pesar de las dificultades por las que pasaba este personaje pudo recibirse de médico en la Universidad de San Marcos pero luego tuvo que huir también de Perú y lo hizo hacia Chile donde fue el primer, primer médico diplomado que tuvo ese país y allí continúa la historia si quieren decir que les cuente el final bueno, en Chile se casó enamoró a la hija del gobernador pero a pesar de eso la Inquisición descubrió que practicaba en secreto algunos ritos judíos y fue enviado también a Lima donde también lo hundieron las cárceles, lo torturaron y quisieron, quisieron que él renunciara públicamente a su identidad. Pero él no lo hizo. Y aquí vienen los 13 años de prisión, de lucha, de debate, a lo que se refiere el libro. What comes after what I just read is even more impressive 
and more exemplary because in spite of all the difficulties, he became a doctor, but then he had to flee Peru where he went, he went to Chile, where he became the first doctor in the history of Chile. And there, um, he became friends with the governor he married, and he married the governor's daughter. However, in spite of his success, the Inquisition found that he had engaged in some Jewish rites and put him in jail, subjected him to torture, and asked that he publicly renounced his Jewish identity, but he didn't. He was in jail for 13 years, and that's the subject of the rest of the book. And it's really uh, wonderful, and I believe it was written originally in 1992, and it's been translated now, and it's coming out in July in English. I wanted to move us along because we have so many wonderful, thank you so much. What an honor it is to be here with him. Um, we have our next uh, distinguished guest, um, to, uh, and Ayşe Kulin is one of Turkey's most beloved authors, with more than 10 million copies of her book sold. In addition to penning internationally best-selling novels, she has worked as a producer, cinematographer, and screenwriter for numerous television shows and films, and her last novel, which I... I think many of us read Last Train to Istanbul, won the European Council Jewish Community Best Novel Award, and has been translated into 23 languages. And I am just going to tell you, I just finished um, her book, which is also coming out in July in translation. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, I will just say a little bit that... Um, it's a novel based on true events that explores the depths of pride, devotion, and persistence as four generations of a family struggle to forge their destinies. As Hitler's reign of terror begins to loom large over Germany, Gerhard and Elsa Schleimann, like other German Jews, must flee with their children in search of sanctuary. But life elsewhere in Europe offers full, few opportunities for medical uh, Professor Gerhard and his fellow scientists, they discover an unexpected haven in Turkey where universities and hospitals welcome them as valuable assets. But despite embracing their adopted land, personal and political troubles persist. Military coups begin bring unrest and uncertainty to the country. Intermarriage challenges the cultural identity of their descendants and anti-Semitism once again threatens their future in the place they call home. And we are going to get a, a selection of your choice from this um, work, um, Without a Country. <clears throat> March 1933, Frankfurt. Elsa stood in the doorway, fighting back tears. Permitted to take nothing more than a handbag on her journey, she was agonizing over what to bring. If only she could record every single silly object in her memory for eternity, intermingled with the porcelain menagerie she had been collecting since childhood, family photographs perched in front of the books lining the shelves. The grandest frame enclosed the wedding photo in which seated sideways on a tabaret, the train of her gown artfully arranged at her feet, 
Elsa beamed at the camera. Gerhard, standing close behind, his hand on her shoulder, as if to say, trust me, you will be safe from now on. But now, that same man was giving Elsa only minutes to flee her home. Were they doing the right thing? If only they had waited a little longer, they could have talked it over, come to a decision. Elsa walked into the dining room and opened the door of the sideboard. Sinking to her knees, she reached to the back bottom shelf and caressed the stack of mice and dinner plates. Elsa's leather knapsack from her days as a high school girl guide was deep. Surely she could squeeze in a plate or two as a souvenir. She could almost hear Gerhard's voice. Are you out of your mind? We are trying to escape with our lives and you are fussing over some old plates. Okay, but maybe some family photographs. And what about her hat box full of precious letters? Gerhard's amateurish poems, for example. To take a poem with her to read aloud one distant day to her grandchildren, it gave her a moment of pleasure, this image of herself as a grandmother whose beauty had once inspired poetic tributes, but there was no time now to write through old letters. If she wanted grandchildren one day, she would have to hurry. Elsa caught sight of her pale face in the sideboard mirror. Her left eye was twitching. Then the tears came. Thieves, she screamed between choked sobs. Those wicked, wicked thieves. Her identity was being stolen. Her history, her memories, her letters, her friends, her house, her street, her city. A madman whose greed had eclipsed his reason was stealing her life, and her husband was powerless to stop him. She brushed away the tears sliding down her cheek and picked up the letter on the table. Elsa, the clerk bringing you this note thinks that I have forgotten my exam questions at home. Get the beige envelope in the right-hand drawer, put my passport in it, and give it to him. Pick the baby, then go immediately to Peter's school and pull him out of class. Tell the teacher your mother has fallen ill. Don't worry, she's fine, and that you need to visit her at once. Take nothing but your passports, all your jewelry, and whatever cash is in the safe. Board the first train to Zurich. If I'm not on it, we'll meet at the end of the day at your parents' house. We must hurry. You understand, don't you? All my jewelry, she grumbled on her way to the bedroom. The only jewelry she owned was the wedding ring on her finger. She got, to the, she got the hat box down from the top shelf, retrieved the key hidden inside, and opened the safe. Ah, she'd forgotten Gerhard's gold pocket watch, a wedding gift from her father. There was some costume jewelry on the dresser, but they'd never get anything for it. Ah, and the expensive face cream she had bought only last week, but it wouldn't fit in the bag. Idiotic to dwell on such nonsense. There was no time for self-pity. She knotted the ring, the watch, into a handkerchief, along with the banknotes from the safe. She went to the kitchen, some coins left over from her daily shopping. The total of her personal savings were in the bread box. She carefully slipped them into a knapsack, and on a whim, rushed back to the bedroom, 
to grab a tube of lipstick. Done. It had been nearly half an hour since Helmut de Klerk had gone off with Gerhard's passport, and there she was, still running in circles. Elsa reluctantly entered the room where her baby daughter was sleeping. There is more, but I don't think I should read. Well, that's, I think it's a wonderful yeah. section. I just finished reading this book. It's really great. Now, the, uh, to my right is an author who I had not read before, and I just finished. Can we hold up your book for a yeah, second? It's my first book. That's my first book. That's why. There's a reason. The, uh, the Boat People. This is uh, Sharon. Follows, uh, her debut novel, The Boat People, was published uh, here uh, in the U.S. this January by Doubleday, but she's a Canadian. It was published by McClelland and Stewart. Stewart, yeah. And the manuscript won the Percy James First Novel Award and was shortlisted for the Fresh Fish Award. A three-time recipient of Newfoundland and Labrador's uh, Arts and Letters Award. She has had stories uh, published um, in Hazlitt, Grain, the Dalhousie Review, and others. She was born in Dubai, raised in... I, she wrote the 905, and I know that's Ontario, right? <laughs> Suburbs um, of Toronto. Right. And she now lives in St. John's, Newfoundland, with her husband, who is a mathematician named Don Beard. And it is a Globe and Mail bestseller, an extraordinary novel about a group of refugees who survive a perilous ocean voyage only to face the threat of deportation amid accusations of terrorism. Um, I could read a little bit more about it, but why don't you introduce your book as, we're, as you've been introducing yourselves to the American literary community. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Penn. Thank you, Lori. Um, the Boat People is my debut novel, and it was inspired by a real event. In August of 2010, a rusty cargo ship called the MV Sunsea arrived off the west coast of Canada. It arrived on Vancouver Island, and on board were uh, 492 asylum seekers. These were Tamil refugees who had fled a really brutal war in Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka, if you don't know it, is a tiny island nation just underneath India in the Indian Ocean. And um, the population there is majority Sinhalese and the minority are... Sorry, the majority is Sinhalese and the minority are Tamil. These are two very different kinds of people. They have different languages. They have different religions. And for very complicated reasons, there was a war between them. And of course, as in all of these genocide stories, it's the people in the middle, the innocent civilians who get caught. And so almost 500 of them uh, came on this rusty cargo ship to Canada in 2010. And you know, I think um, many people outside of Canada have this image of Canada as being a really open and welcoming country. But the truth is that sometimes we are that way and sometimes we're in a good mood, and other times we're in a very bad mood and we turn people away. Um, for example, in 1939, there was a boat called the MS St. Louis, which arrived in Canada after trying to find um, refuge in a couple of other countries, and it was carrying a number of Jewish refugees who had left Europe, um, and they were turned away and sent back to die. And so these are ugly chapters in my nation's history, and in August of 2010, the country was in a very ugly mood. And the government of the day, it was a different government in power then, and they really wanted to send a message that the door is closed. And so a couple of years later, in 2013, I began to research to write this novel. 
And there was an image that I saw over and over again, and it was an image of the MV Sunsea, this cargo ship, as it was just approaching land. And all the people had come to the top of the deck to get their first glimpse of what they thought was going to be their new homeland, what they thought was going to be salvation and kind of the end of this long, horrible journey. Um, and so all these people had come to the top deck, and that they had all come to one side of the boat to spot new land, and the boat was actually listing. And that image of that listing boat was one that I held really close, um, and in particular when I was writing the opening chapter of the novel. So I'm just going to read uh, the end of the opening chapter, which is called Beginning. Mahindan kept his gaze fixed on the horizon. At first he saw the head of a pin far in the distance, but as he kept watching, the vision emerged. Purple-brown land and blue mountains, like ghosts, rising in the background. The newspaper man came to join them as the slope of a forest appeared. Mahinden had spoken to him a few times, but could not recall his name. Someone said he had been working for a paper in Colombo before he fled. We will be intercepted, the newspaper man said. Americans or Canadians, who will catch us first? But now there were people streaming onto the deck, squeezing in for a view at the railing, and the newspaper man was jostled away. There were voices and bodies everywhere. People plaited their hair, women plaited their hair over one shoulder. Men pulled their arms through their t-shirts. Most were barefoot. People pressed up around him. The boat creaked, and Mahinden felt it list as everyone crowded in. They stood shoulder to shoulder, people on both levels of the deck, hushing one another, children holding their breath. The trees, the mountains, the strip of beach they could now make out up ahead, it all seemed impossibly big, unreal, after day... After days and nights of nothing but sea and sky and the rumbling of the ship. Nightmares of rusted steel finally giving way, belching them all into the ocean. Celian appeared, squeezing himself between legs, one fist against his eyes. Up by you said, you left me. How to leave, Mahinden said. Did you think I had jumped in the ocean? He picked his son up in the crook of one arm and pointed. Look, we're here. The clouds burned orange. Mahinden squinted. People shouted and pointed. Look, look. There was a tugboat in the water and a larger ship, its long nose turned up, speeding toward them, sleek and fast with a tall white flagpole. The wind unfurled the flag, red and white, majestic in the flaming sky. They saw the leaf and the great resounding cheer shook the boat. The captain cut the engine and they floated, placid. Overhead, there was a chopping sound. Mahinden saw a helicopter, its blades slicing the sky, a red leaf painted on its belly. There were three boats now, all of them circling the ship, a welcome party. 
On the deck, people waved with both hands. The red and white flag snapped, definitive. Mahindan gripped his son. Selian shivered in his arms. From fear, from exhilaration, he couldn't tell. And soon, Mahindan was shaking too, armpits dampening. His teeth clattered. Their new life, it was just beginning. Thank you. Isn't that gorgeous? And the, whole, the whole book is really magnificent and just gorgeous writing. I want to uh, ask Aisha a question. Uh, we were talking a little bit in the back about how your book was, uh, you know, all of these are novels, but your book as well was inspired by some history, and perhaps you can share, this is, uh, it was history that was unknown to me and to, about Turkey's connection uh, to, the, to, to Jews that were academics and physicians, and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what inspired you and how you came to decide to write this uh, novel. This book is about the uh, Jewish professors who were sacked from their positions in Germany, and um, Turkey offered them jobs in, in Istanbul University, and they came, 300 of them, with their families. How many? Sorry, how many? 300. Uh, maybe more. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, with their families, because uh, they, they came in groups. First they came to, to the Istanbul University, and then they erupted the another university in Ankara. So there were more people coming in. And uh, I wrote this book out of gratitude to, uh, to these professors who raised two generations of uh, the best engineers, best doctors, economists, musicians, anything we have in, in Turkey in, in the sense of modern culture and modern education, we owe it to these gentlemen who came on Atatürk's uh, invitation. Occasionally, we have very bright men, unfortunately not very often, leading our uh, country. Atatürk was one of them. Uh, should I give a little background of... Absolutely. Uh, when the Ottomans collapsed eventually after the Great War, out of his ashes uh, came uh, Atatürk uh, erupted this Turkish Republic. And he wanted to educate the people who were completely without education at all because Ottomans only educated their military uh, people and their bureaucrats. And the people, the, the masses, were left completely uneducated. Uh, unlike the Christian and the Jewish subjects of the empire, because they did educate their children, but Anatolia was completely illiterate. So uh, he opened schools and changed the alphabet to, uh, from Arabic scripture to Latin alphabet, which was much easier to learn within a matter of months, and uh, started a big reform. Also, he wanted to reform the universities, and he was modernizing every institution in Turkey. Uh, so these people came to, to add to this reform, actually, which they did, 
And another reason why I wanted, I mean, I wanted to show my gratitude to them uh, in praise of them. I, I have decided to write, write this book. And then secondly, another reason, uh, when I was writing this book, we were going through a period which was quite similar with what Hitler and Germany went through in, in the 30s, 30s, 1930s. So uh, as a writer, I felt that it was my duty to create an awareness in my readers that there is a parallel uh, reading almost in our lives so they can take notice of what's happening in Turkey today. Thank you. Um, I, I guess my next question is for Marcos. Um, this panel is uh, dedicated to the theme of persistence. And I believe you started your literary career in 1963. You were a, a surgeon, is that correct? Um, and how do you keep the energy for a literary career? How do you persist? And have, you, ha, have there moments where you have wanted uh, to just bow out? And what has kept you going? Se ha desarrollado una profesión que se llama la psicología. Porque la psicología revela que nosotros no nos conocemos del todo. Entonces esa respuesta no la puedo dar. Porque yo mismo no sé cómo pude hacer todo lo que hice, cómo lo hice, cuándo lo hice. En Argentina un escritor me ha puesto un título exagerado, quizá delirante, diciendo que yo era un hombre del Renacimiento, porque hice tantas cosas. Fui cirujano, fui pianista profesional, que di conciertos, fui psicoanalista, fui ministro de Cultura y todo el tiempo escritor. Parece que fue largo lo que dije. What I said was a little long here. Um, well, you know, we have this profession called psychologist, and one of the things that psychologist uh, tells us is that we really don't know ourselves very well. So, to answer your question, I can say I don't know. I don't know how I did all I did, how I did it, and when I did it. Uh, I was a writer, uh, and actually, another writer in Argentina, and perhaps exaggerating a bit called me, um, and this might have been somewhat uh, uh, delirious on his part, he called <laughs> me a, a renaissance man because um, I was a writer, a surgeon, um, a psychologist, psychoanalyst. A professional piano player, uh, and I was minister of culture, and all the time I continued Uh, to write. Y también me metí profundamente en política y por eso valoro mucho lo que escuchamos acá sobre Turquía. I also got very deeply involved in politics and that's why I place a great deal of value of what we just heard here from Turkey. Yo tenía 15 años cuando leí la biografía de Kemal Ataturk. I was 15 years old when I read the uh, biography of Kemal Ataturk. Y la, val y la valentía de Kemal Ataturk es la que deberían imitar 
millones de turcos ahora. And the, the courage of Kemal Ataturk should be emulated by millions of Turks today. Pero creo que me desvié de la pregunta. But I think I deviated from your question. No, it's okay. <laughs> Everything you say is very entertaining and informative. <laughs> I'm going to ask Sharon a question. And um, in, a, in a, about uh, five or six minutes, we'll open it up to audience questions. But Sharon has the opposite situation. She has burst on the scene. <laughs> She's known, known primarily in Canada. But now you have a first book that not only uh, have you published a first book in hardcover, but it's doing phenomenally well, and you've been able to be published internationally. And I wonder what the perils of being a, a new writer are. I mean, are, are, I mean, you might battle some things like jealousy or, what, or just reading reviews. Everything is instant on, online. Why don't you take us through what it's like for you now? Oh, I haven't asked, been asked this question publicly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm also going to make it up. Um, Jealousy, I don't worry about that too much because um, it's, it was actually much worse uh, before I got a publishing deal. <laughs> the jealousy kind of goes away when you get a publishing deal, which is nice. But I think for writers, if you're going to be successful, you have to get used to rejection, and there's a lot of that before you get anything published at all, if you're lucky enough to have anything published. Um, and then I think all of that rejection sort of makes you build up this tougher skin so that when you get a book out and there are reviews, even if there are bad reviews, you can just sort of slough them off. I've been pretty fortunate in that the vast, vast majority of my um, kind of reviews, both on blogs and uh, professional reviews and then just notes I get from nice readers have been uh, really positive. So I feel really fortunate. Um, but And in terms of social media, I mean, I'm just not on Twitter, which I think is a huge help. <laughs> I it's like a life thing, I think. sympathize with you because I had 25 years of rejections from publishers. <laughs> oh, so I know what. Well. <laughs> See, it's good to be rejected, I think. I think it's good to be rejected at the start. You know, there was... Um, so I live in, um, in Newfoundland, which is an island on the easternmost part of Canada, and um, there's only ever been one author from Newfoundland who's had a story published uh, in, the, in the New Yorker, which, of course, is like the gold standard, right, for short stories. Um, but this writer, the story with her is that she wasn't a writer. She was a, doing a, some kind of desk job, and then she wrote a short story. And a sister of hers, uh, sort of without her knowledge, sent it. This was in the 70s. So sent it by mail, and it got published. And she was so instantly successful um, that she didn't really realize what rejection would be like. <laughs> and then she sent another story somewhere else, and it got rejected. And then she just she gave up and put it away. Whereas I think if you start with you know lots yeah. of rejection, uh -huh. it, yeah. it's like no problem later. In a way. <laughs> um, I'm gonna. For, I, I, um, actually, I wanted to just get this one. We had a very funny bit of talk about how you're proud of um, a lot of your work, but some of your titles make you cringe. Is this true? <laughs> well, well how, you wanted to, I wanted you to share the story about control that you have as an author and determining how your, your work is presented, because your work speaks for itself. But, the, but how, what do you think about... Um, we were talking about the titles, and you, you wanted me to bring it up. Ah, the titles of the books. 
Yes. Yes, yes. This was a very. This is well, very entertaining. Uh, the titles in English are quite different from the titles that you know. Uh, I put them in my Turkish books. For example, I have a book called "Love in Exile" in English. There is no exile at all in the book, but they thought "Love in Exile" would would have buying power. But a reader can ask, "Where is the exile?" You know, there is love, yes, but no exile whatsoever. So you know, and you can't let your he- voice hurt. You know, they don't listen to you. Uh, I'm very happy with Amazon. I'm grateful to them because you know they are making wonders for me. But I don't like the titles. <laughs> I have to say, with my this book, without a country, yeah, it makes sense. Because you know people are left without a country, right? Those who, who left Germany. Now I want to ask. Um, I'm going to ask one more question and then open it up to the audience. Take us through a typical writing day. Do you have rituals? Do you have a, a place that you have to write? A time? I think that everyone who's I'm as a writer loves to hear about this. Mar- uh, perhaps we'll start with Marcus. Yeah, Marcus. Yo soy bastante ordenado y desordenado al mismo tiempo. I'm rather organized and disorganized simultaneously. <laughs> Por ejemplo, cuando escribí el libro que más éxito tuvo en mi juventud y por el cual me dieron en España el premio más importante de toda la lengua española, de toda América Latina también, que se llama La Cruz Invertida, le escribí cuando estaba ejerciendo con mucha intensidad la neurocirugía. So, for example, the most successful book I wrote in my youth, uh, which was called The Inverted Cross, which won the highest book prize, literary prize in the Spanish-speaking world, um, I wrote that while I was working intensively as a neurosurgeon. Y yo era el único neurocirujano de toda una región del interior de Argentina. And I was the only neurosurgeon in an entire region uh, in the uh, hinterland of Argentina. Y como ustedes saben, la neurocirugía se ocupa muchas veces de problemas urgentes. And as you know, in neurosurgery, a lot you have you have often to deal with urgent problems. Y a mí me llamaban de distintas localidades de esa región, de día y de noche, para atender casos urgentes. And I would be called from different places in the region, night and day, to deal with urgent cases. Y mientras manejaba hacia el lugar de la urgencia, se me ocurría un tema de la novela que escribía. And while I was on my way uh, driving to wherever the emergency had cropped up, I would come up with a new idea for the novel that I was working on. <laughs> y apenas regresaba a casa, escribía lo que se me había ocurrido durante el viaje. And as soon as I got back to the house, I would write what had occurred to me during my car trip. Por eso las primeras 50 páginas parecen un caos. That, that's why the first 50 pages seem chaotic. Pero en esa época estaba de moda una renovación de la literatura, especialmente encabezada por Julio Cortázar. At that time, however, this an, a literary renewal which was being led by Julio Cortázar was quite in vogue. Y dicen que ese, ese, ese estilo que al principio sorprendía y molestaba fue una de las razones por la cual me dieron el premio. 
and they say that that style, which some which seemed so bothersome and disorganized uh, at the beginning, uh, was one of the reasons I got the prize. Pero a medida que pasaba el tiempo, fui aprendiendo y a organizarme mejor las horas de, de trabajo, horas de, de cirugía y horas de escritura. But as time went by, I learned and I was able to better organize my my time between writing and surgery. And what, what about your day? What is it like? Because you have a full uh, life as well. <laughs> I am a very crowded person. I have four sons, eight grandchildren. I used to have a mom for a long time who lived long. Could you talk uh, a little closer to the mic, maybe? Could you approach the mic? Shall I start from? That's better. Uh, I'm a very crowded person. I have four sons, eight grandchildren. Uh, my mother lived qu quite long, so my hands were always full. So I cannot retire to my towers and, you know, write in silence. This is such a luxurious thought, but it never happens. So I write everywhere. I write most of the time in the kitchen, because if I'm not in the kitchen, I burn the food I'm cooking. <laughs> and uh, I, I write at the hairdressers when I'm dyeing my hair. I write at the airplanes. I write at the boat stations. You know, everywhere I carry my little laptop and I keep writing. But fortunately, I can just uh, devote myself into my work and not hear anything. That's why I burn the food. Uh, I, I don't even get the smell. <laughs> Once I'm writing, you know, I can concentrate. This is one lucky part, yeah. And Sharon? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people have this idea of, like, all of us are like Sarah Jessica Parker, just kind of typing away in, in, our, in our ivory towers. Uh, but I, too, write a lot on the road. Yeah. Um, and, and in particular, since January, since the book has come out, I've been traveling quite a bit uh, to promote the book. And even when I'm at home, there's just so much book promotion sort of activities that I tend to write sort of in the margins of my life. Um, and I think, like the other writers here, uh, I do a lot of my writing not physically at a computer and not physically with a pen, but just when I'm out in the world kind of looking at people and listening to people talk. I'm filing a lot of things away, either mentally or on my phone. Um, and, you know, when I'm in the shower, when I'm taking a walk, when I'm on a plane, I'm often doing a lot of the mental work of thinking about plot and character so that in those bits of time where I have to sit down and actually write, I've got a scene that's already been brewing for like two or three days. Now I have more questions, but I actually don't want to lose the opportunity to get any audience questions. So why don't we see if we have any? If not, I can always add more questions. Yes. Somebody else, somewhere else, our neighbor. 
you're telling stories of, of very important individual courage. And I don't know how much you've wrestled with this question in your comments of the question of collective courage, and I would say in particular not just to act after the disaster has struck, but all of us now are being called on to act while the disaster is looming, not just on ourselves and our neighbors, but a disaster that's looming of a fascist America I'm going to paraphrase that. If I <laughs> um, is, I'm asking if you're just ascertaining your question is the challenge of writing about individual courage versus collective courage. Would you well, they're, say? They're talking about Argentina, right. Uh, 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 Turkey. Would anyone like to take that on? Yeah. Can I? Sharon. Yeah. So um, in my book, there are a couple of different things happening. There's the situation where these refugees are coming in 20, 2009, 2010 to, Sri to Canada. But then I also go back and look at uh, what happened in the Sri Lankan Civil War. And then I also look at, um, there's a character in the book who is Japanese-Canadian. And I go back and look at what happened um, during the Second World War, when in Canada, as in the US, we interned many of our Japanese-Canadian citizens. And the thing that I really found was that there were so many parallels between the rhetoric that was used against, the rhetoric that was used and the propaganda that was used to spread fear in Canada, and this, this word that just kept coming up over and over again about national security was used against the Japanese Canadians, was used against these Tamil asylum seekers. And those words were also used in Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, the war was really begun by, it began with this very chauvinist, uh, very kind of virulent strain of patriotism, which I think is what you know we saw in, in Germany during the war, and we're seeing it again here in the US. And so the thing I really found was there is the, like, these cycles and the history just repeating itself. And I think part of why people sometimes don't act as a group is um, because they've forgotten that this has all happened before and that looking at what's happened in the past can tell us exactly what's going to happen in the future. Um, I, um, I'm wondering if there's another question. Did you have a question? Yes. yes. Uh, my question is for Marcus. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 